and welcome to another episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. Actually, it's episode 31. Sounds like some secret agency in the Federation or something. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, yeah, that's section 31. Yeah, almost yeah. forgot. So, comrade, my co-host Jason is here to take us along as we're two Christian guys going through the news and culture that matter to you. How are you tonight, Jason? I'm good. This internet connection's a little sketchy, but, uh... Yeah. Um, well, you know, our internet connection may be sketchy, but our ideas are, well, <laughs> perhaps sketchy too, but, hey, that's what people uh, are used yeah, to, right? Yeah, if they've gone with us this far, they should be, should be ready to roll with the punches on that one. Indeed. So, uh, let's go ahead and roll with some of the punches with someone who loves to throw out punches just for fun, and that would be Elon Musk. And we find ourselves right in the middle of something that was supposed to happen and then sounded like it wasn't going to happen and then actually apparently has happened, which is that Elon Musk has purchased Twitter. We have one of the most influential points of communication uh, in the world today, something used by politicians and world governments and businesses and individuals to state things publicly, and it is now owned by the world's richest man. So, Is he really the world's richest man? I didn't know that. I believe he is currently. Uh, yeah, because Mr. Gates gave, gave away a lot of his money, and I know Warren Buffett is in the process of giving away a lot of his money. So maybe that is true. Yeah. Yeah, so right now, I just pulled up, according to Investopedia, Elon Musk is the richest than um, Bernard Arnault. I believe it is, uh, in Paris, who owns um, a company that owns a bunch of uh, fashion brands. And then there's a gentleman in India who owns um, Andani Group, I think it is. And then Jeff Bezos. Oh, okay. And then Bill Gates. Well, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was in there somewhere until uh, the recent utter crash of the value of um, Facebook, too, I believe. Well... Uh, I probably shedding a few crocodile tears over that, but, <laughs> but yeah, I can't say I'm terribly heartbroken by Facebook's, uh, coming back uh, down from orbit. Yeah. Pardon the pun. Uh, but yeah, I, I know that those American philanthropists were, were especially in the case of Bezos and Bill Gates were trying to actively have less money. So, it doesn't surprise me that they've been surpassed by somebody on the Indian subcontinent and then a couple of Europeans. So I guess that's not too shocking there, but I haven't kept up with that sort of news. So, But anyway, yeah, I, I think um, with Twitter, I just think uh, he claims that he wants to make it a, a better space for free speech, um, and we're already getting pushback on that from what you might call progressive people that say, well, if you're a bigot and you're this and you're that, it doesn't really help anything, which sort of reinforces the original point about wanting it to be more open for free speech. I don't really feel like I can say what I really think on right. Twitter. Uh, even if I, I, it's not that I've gotten banned by the company or anything, but I've been ratioed by people so many times they, and they don't want to, they don't want to listen to you. So they just, oh, you don't have the right opinions. Get out of here, or they allow, you know, they allow right. their friends to pile on you like you're beneath 
even their consideration. Uh, so, and, and that may be more a societal thing than having to do with the, the policies of any one social network. But as we've talked about before, I think some of the policies of said social network reinforce some of those cultural trends toward um, not listening and chilling out certain forms of speech and ideas. Yes, yeah. And I, I think that's one thing I'm encouraged about. One of the things that Musk said months ago when this first came up, he mentioned that he desired to open source the algorithm that determines what we see on Twitter. And whether he'll make good on that or not may be an open question. I could easily see him backing off from that and saying, well, we did a security analysis and we can't do that or something. But if he does, and I think it would be good for us if he did, I can't help but think that that would improve the quality of speech on social media if, if the giants were pressured to actually expose how they decide to show us things. Because, because as you said, the, the way the networks operate seems to be influencing our cultural norms on, on conversation right. or lack thereof. And if, if we could actually see how the algorithm was working, what it was trying to do, and we were horrified by it, or maybe even better yet, uh, we saw it and saw that Twitter was trying to move in a different direction, and we could applaud that. I think that could be incredibly helpful. Um, and maybe, and people who know me know that I've been a Elon Musk fan of way of sorts for years. Um, so I, I was excited about this. I, I've been fascinated by Tesla, fascinated by SpaceX, fascinated by the Boring Company. Um, I, I like what Musk represents in so many ways. Not every way. Right. Not every way by any means, but at a certain level at least. Um, he, he offers a chance to break out of, uh, out of our current cultural moment, I think, because Musk is very decidedly not our current political right or left, and I don't think he has any desire to be. Um, he's wealthy enough to do whatever it is that he wants, and uh, when it comes to Twitter, there is something to be said for breaking Twitter out of being a public company that's main purpose is to come out with good profit and loss statements to share with investors. Um, and not that Twitter is going to do this as a charity, excuse me, Musk is going to run Twitter as a charity, but I think Musk has shown time and again, his ability to look long-term and say, this is going to hurt financially. It's going to look like we're burning up in the short term, but it's going to turn out really well. And that's what he did with Twitter. Yeah. Excuse me, with Tesla. And I kind of wonder if he'll do that with Twitter as well, where he's going to make some hard choices, some unpopular choices, but ones that five years from now, 10 years from now, we say, well, we never would have had Twitter as it is. We might not have Twitter at all, if not for what Musk did. And, and just like, I don't think we would all be looking to a future where people are in self-driving electric cars, at least at any Thing like the current speed that we're moving towards that, if not for Musk building Tesla the way that he did, as opposed to the way traditional car companies would go about it. Um, I liked what John Gruber, the author of Daring Fireball and, and the host of the talk show, said about, about this. I think it kind of speaks to the issue. And there, as you said, comrade, a lot of the, those on the left are worried about what's going to happen with Twitter. Um, at this moment, they seem to be angrier at Musk than the right is, although I'm sure that will change once again. But 
uh, a lot of them are suggesting, well, this is horrible. Uh, Musk is going to turn this into just this awful pit of free speech. And who knows? He may ruin it. But what Gruber, who no one would accuse of being anywhere near the right, uh, points out, is that Twitter's greatest threat isn't Musk experimenting and somehow trying to rework it. Uh, Twitter's greatest threat is just burning up into irrelevance. And he says this, he says, the, the risk of fading into irrelevance is far greater, if not certain, under Twitter's current leadership. I think Twitter is worth saving. I think Twitter requires massive change in order to be saved, both outward-facing as a service and platform and internally as a company. I would not have picked Elon Musk as the person to lead the company through those changes. But you dance with the one who bought the company and took it private. What I would say is all I want to say for myself, and I agree with all that. Uh, but I, I would draw a distinction between uh, his intentions to create a more open platform, whether we call that, uh, versus his own particular views on on certain issues. I don't have to endorse all of that. Uh, like he was. He was appearing the other day to endorse some misinformation, uh, some really flagrant bad stuff involving the recent attack on Paul Pelosi, and we certainly join with the speaker in praying for him. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't, I don't endure, I don't endorse any of that, but I like the idea of him being a contributor to a more open, free, free flowing. Society and the risk of having an open, free society is that sometimes people say things that are really offensive, objectionable, and that kind of thing. And I still, I still agree with the idea that the uh, that the remedy for bad speech is better speech. Yes. Uh, so if if Elon Musk, in his effort to be a philanthropist and a business person, uh, wants to contribute to the effort of a more open society, I'm all for it. It doesn't mean I have to endorse everything that he believes in or, or thinks cause, cause I certainly don't. And I would say being somewhat politically different from you, though I can tell you, um, Elon Musk hasn't done anything to make me angry. So, um, other people may be angry and that's fine. I just, See kind of a weird guy with a lot of money <laughs> that, you know, tries to do interesting things because that's what he has um, to do. Uh, I read an interesting thing today about him. I think it was in the Atlantic, but that he sort of sees himself as a symbol of Generation X, which is why everything that he started has an X in it somewhere. Um, so. I thought that was really interesting, and and him as the, um, just at a at a personal level, him as the child of divorced parents, and in one article he described himself as a latchkey kid, uh, and so in that way, um, just person to person, I felt compassion for him, um, um, as a child of divorce myself, um, and. And that could be one of the driving forces for his ambition, um, his willingness to try things, uh, because there was something, uh, you, you know, you could be filled up by your parents 
and then that could push you to great things. But sometimes when you have a lack, that could push you toward those things to try and fill in that gap. So he's of the latter. He's he's trying to fill a gap, and he's he's tireless in that in those sorts of pursuits. So so I wish him well in in helping us toward a more open society. I don't necessarily endorse all of his views, but that's okay. Uh, it's not like I've been keeping a file of everything that he says and does. I haven't. So yeah, yeah, it's good to remember the personal. I think that's really interesting what you mentioned. Uh, you and I were talking before the show. I find, and, and certainly this isn't my original analogy. I've heard other people make it, but to me, Elon Musk is sort of the real life Tony Stark uh, from the Marvel universe. You know, Iron Man, and you can see that from everything, like when uh, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine started, and he turns on satellite internet to help them communicate better, to uh, the fact that basically he rescued the United States as far as having a space program at all with SpaceX. Uh, so you have that side of him. You have um, Tesla, which is fascinating from an industrial standpoint, just building a new car company from scratch and actually working around the world. And then on the other hand, he he's busy, you know, tweeting middle school level humor jokes and and, and things of that nature. I mean, he he's not the polished businessman that we're used to, uh, but he's somewhat of a mad genius, I think. And um, again, I, I think that gives me hope when it comes to Twitter, because I think the normal approach to things is not what Twitter needs. It doesn't need someone who's either trying to figure out how to cultivate the left or the right. Um, we really need someone who can maybe come up with a different way of approaching things because clearly what's happening on social media isn't working. But I don't think the solution is to pick one side as the winner and then cut off all the other speech that's deemed undesirable by them. So um, I'm excited. I, I think it could be a good thing, uh, including the whole controversy on blue check marks. If you make it available for eight bucks a month rather than having to be a certain level of importance to get a blue check mark, that may not be such a bad thing. Yeah. I agree, and I and, and I'm generally um, on board with your optimism on that. I was just reminded, having read a few of those things, that hey, this is you know whatever we think of him. Hey, this is a person made in the image of God, and and that in itself is a good thing. So hopefully, he can do good things and help us out, like you were. That would be wonderful, um, and that's a great reminder too. We should be praying for him. I would love someday to see that he uh, comes to hear the gospel, respond to it, and he becomes as enthusiastic of an evangelist as he is a, as a tweeter. That would be, be truly quite something. Well, another thing I hope that you will endorse wholeheartedly is faithtree.com. It's a place where you can take all your favorite news sources, favorite blogs, favorite things that you like to keep track of on the internet along with your stocks and weather. You can bring it all together in one place that is built to serve you and to serve ministry and not to track you. So if you remember the great my web pages of the past, my Yahoo, my Netscape, these places where you could customize a page with the things that interested you, that's faithtree.com available today without any advertising. And in addition, if you remember the Google Google reader of old, the RSS reader that let you go through the news feeds and, and keep up on all your favorite sources in one 
clean, easy-to-use interface. That's also faithtree.com. It all comes together there. It's free, it's easy to use, and you should check it out today. Comrade, we've been talking about someone who often tweets in the middle of the night. Now we're going to talk about someone who sings about the middle of the night, or more, more precisely, midnight's. And that is none other than Taylor Swift, who, of course, makes an appearance on Zippy. At least her music does in the discussion of it. We'd love to have her as a guest if she's listening. Uh, That would be quite something. But uh, she hasn't done that yet. But her new album has come out, and we need to talk about it. So, Midnight. Yeah, so we're two of the biggest Swifties, so we love to talk about Taylor as much as possible. And as you mentioned, Tim, that uh, Midnight's has come out, and I at least... She released some more tracks, as you were saying off the air, uh, seven more tracks at like 3 a.m. And I haven't gotten to those yet, but I listened to the original 13. Um, And I liked it. I thought thought it was um, uneven in some parts. Uh, I would have to check the Twitter to remind myself of my three favorite tracks. Um, I think I said Bejeweled was one of them. Uh, and then Sweet Nothing, which I, I believe was the last track on the original 13 tracks of the album. A second to last. Second to last. And, and yeah, Mastermind. Yeah. So, um, I liked it a lot. It's not, um, I, I, I can't, at least right now for myself, I can't put it in the same category in terms of its groundbreakingness with say folklore um, but she's not going to hurt herself with this and every time I listen to it I enjoy it more but I, I don't think um, I don't think it's at the level of folklore but it, um, it's up there as one of her better ones and it's interesting um, I will for our audience I will issue a language warning in terms of profanity and even some blasphemy on the record, which I think is unnecessary. Um, so if you can get your hands on a on a clean version, that is fine. Uh, I know I did that with Evermore. I got a clean version uh, from our friends at Spotify. So um, that would be worth it to you. But I liked it. What did you think of what you've heard so far? Um. Well, I'll kind of go in reverse order. I'll agree with your warning. And, um, in fact, I, I do have the clean version of this album, um, which, like Evermore, and this is something interesting. I, I'm kind of going about this backwards, but um, one thing that struck me, and then I, I hadn't heard anyone else say this, and I happened to be looking up something online the other day and saw other people were commenting the same thing. I actually think on Evermore, Swift shows off her her genius for, for lyricism to a greater degree on the clean version, because where she replaces the profanity with instead something else, um, it actually only makes the, 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 the lyrics richer. So for example, on Evermore in, in Ivy and in happiness, um, Ivy perhaps being the most cringeworthy on the language side on the non-clean version in the clean version, uh, I think Ivy's actually stronger, and Happiness, I think the reworked version, 
the 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 word change actually makes it all the more poetic and powerful, which to me is probably my biggest knock on on Midnight's because if anything, she doubles down on her use of language, um, foul language that is, and it's sort of a it seems a shame to me that someone who is so good at wordsmithing and creating novel turns of phrase that we remember years later, it it seems a shame that she feels obliged to use certain profane words uh, over and over again, where she wouldn't use other words that repetitively in um, in an album. So that's that's probably my biggest critique. Um, and maybe it's a bit of a shame, like if we were to link to it here, if I wanted to link to one of the songs and reference it, the YouTube versions, unfortunately, are not clean. So you can't just easily link to the clean version. But if you go on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. Yeah, I can't just put it in the show notes there. No. Right. Uh, but dude, if you go on any of the major music services, there is a clean version, and I think it's worth listening to. I I like the the conceit behind this one. Uh, we all have had sleepless nights contemplating things, good things, bad things, uh, in between things, fears and, and hopes and joys, and the idea of writing an album that is encapsulating that, I, I think, is a a good one. Um, I I think. Overall, uh, like you said, it's a little uneven. Overall, I feel like it's a pretty strong album. There, were, In the middle, there are some tracks I wasn't overly impressed with, like uh, You're On Your Own Kid and Question, they, I thought were not as enticing to me. Um, actually, one the only track ever by Swift that has a, a um, profane word in the title, Vigilante Blank, um, I think is a a fascinating track in encapsulating the desire for revenge, which of course I don't endorse, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've all at times felt the desire for it. So to me, that's actually a really, really strong track and you get the clean version. It's only the title is profane at that point. Um, For myself, I'd say my favorite tracks probably would be that one along with, my my favorite would, would be Antihero, and then I think Maroon is a really interesting track. Um, and I might throw Snow on the Beach in uh, just for good measure. Uh, overall, I think it's, it's just an interesting spectrum of of experiences that probably most of us can identify with at different points. Uh, Antihero with um, a surprisingly vulnerable Swift contemplating. Um, whether she's the problem. Uh, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, for example. I'm not surprised at the vulnerability from Taylor there, uh, because if you watch if you watch the folklore film on Disney+, Plus, the performance movie, there's a lot of vulnerability in between the tracks there when she talks about that. And, I, and I'm not surprised when she's, you know... We're most vulnerable when we have sleepless nights and nightmares and those types of things. So I think that's part of the story of what she's trying to do with Midnight. I think she wants to be an open person, but one, she's figuring out how to do that as a person in the public eye and also figuring out how to do that as a person who... um doesn't necessarily trust herself as being her best self all the time. 
and she's starting to recognize that at certain points in the past I have not been my best self, so maybe I my opinions on what I've been experiencing are not necessarily um, the the best uh, representation of what occurred or what could have occurred. Um, but in that way, oh, this got weirdly deep on my end. But in that way, um, she's figuring out how to, she's still figuring out what sort of person she wants to be and leaning into that and trying to figure out how she wants to contribute to the world in a positive way. And it's weird to say somebody, to say that somebody that's almost 33 years old is still trying to figure it out. But I think a lot of us can say that. And so I see her wrestling with wrestling with her ethic, wrestling with the darkest parts of herself, um, wrestling with past experiences that may still be impacting her emotionally and otherwise. Um, and that's what, what makes her interesting. She knows how to be popular. She knows how to make money. Otherwise, the companies wouldn't like her too much. But she's an interesting person who has interesting thoughts. Um, and I, I like that. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. me too. I, I think that's part of what the appeal is that there are people who sort of want to say, we're going to do art for art's sake. And it either is completely detached from anything useful and meaningful in our own experiences where we can connect with it. Or they do it in such a profoundly unmarketable way that it never goes anywhere. And then there are people, and we see this in a lot of pop stars, where everything's about um, the metrics of how much can I sell, uh, what can I do. And, and Swift seems to somehow bring those worlds together um, as the best artists do, where she's doing this successfully. Um, that gives her a platform that g- gives her quite a bit of money and, and so on. Um, but she's not necessarily always making purely, uh, commercial choices. And of course, you know, compared to a lot of pop stars that, that don't even write their own music, uh, she is nothing if not first and foremost, a, a songwriter as opposed to a singer. Um, though she certainly hit, is a good one and has gotten better, but I mean, she's a songwriter and I think that's something uh, to be said. Um, here's, here's something that struck me. Uh, comrade on on this album it, to me it felt like it it took a lot of what was sort of developed in folklore and evermore her kind of sound that she's been developing over the last few albums and then almost felt like it leapt back and also yanked on to something of reputation it was like if you took reputation and you matured it five or six years um in a way uh, a lot of the doubts and concerns and anger and hope that are in reputation appeared here, but as it filtered through folklore and evermore. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. Uh, I think, let me just, just glom onto a couple things that you were just saying. I, I think when I listen to it, um, She's the only person in music right now that could lean into the indie world and do two it, two albums basically of indie pop, which is what Folklore and Evermore were. But right at this moment, she's still the biggest star in music. So 
she's found a way to blend all that together and to and to grow emotionally and to look back on the reputation years and go, this is where I was right, this is where I was wrong. Maybe I can reevaluate this. And all that's going on at the same time. Because uh, I will tell you, I did not, in general, I did not, not like 1989 that much. And reputation didn't strike me that, that much. And, and, and that, that's weird to say that because I'm still a major Swifty and I'm like, oh yeah, you should buy it and listen to it. But compared to how I feel about folklore, compared to how I feel about speak now, compared to how I feel about evermore, reputation and, uh, 1989 were the ones that I didn't like as well. So, if she's fo- if she's filtering reputation through folklore and evermore, if you're right about that, then those years can only get better in retrospect. You know, if she's adding that on. So, yeah, yeah, it might be interesting when we see a Taylor's version of Reputation uh, come out, her re-release project. Um, I suspect she'll wait and do that one last since it's the newest of the ones that will be reworked. Um, Speaking of which, before we, we need to move on, but before we do, um, I'm going to make a, a bet here. Um, I don't bet, but I'm going to bet with our listeners that we are going to know from looking at Midnight's what the next Swift, uh, re-release is going to be. And, um, I, I worked through this album one song at a time, uh, our, our, uh, co, uh, co-conspirator in the sound projects uh melanie and i discussed these different tracks um and uh kind of interesting to pick them apart one at a time i'll just say that yeah the um the thing that struck me is there are several hints here in this album i believe and and this uh, swift loves to put an easter egg uh pointing us to speak now being the next release and and the two that really strike me is if you look at the anti-hero uh music video which is quite amusing the the anti-hero music video there are a number of different explosions of sparkly purple in it uh or, or uses of sparkly purple and and whatever oh, happens wow. in each scene and, and i think that could be referring back to the cover of of speak now and if you watch the music video for bejeweled it begins and ends with instrumental versions of to speak now tracks. So um, that's a pretty blatant set of Easter eggs. But even if I hadn't seen that second part before I saw the, the, cause like I said, I was doing one track at a time, just seeing the anti-hero uh, music video, I, I thought it, it's going to be speak now and bejeweled only, only uh, set that further in my mind. Or she could be messing with, you. we'll see. That's true. Yeah. She's released two, two tracks from 1989 now. So, I mean, she's, it's going to be one of those two, uh, because we have, uh, this love and, um, wildest dreams that have been, that have been re-released already. So it go either way, but yeah, that'll be interesting to see, uh, which one comes out first and, and why. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this topic. Both of us are going to listen to the 3am edition and we'll talk about those tracks, which come, from another collaborator from the folklore evermore period and i'm sure that will be interesting when we get to that here on zippy
So we're going to go from midnights to midterms, and next week we have the country voting in the midterm elections. There's obviously a lot at stake based on which party has control of the House and the Senate, and it's an interesting race. It's a very interesting race, wouldn't you say, Comrade? Maybe I'm just a person of hot takes, but I want to remind the audience that a few shows ago, I was the only one on this planet Earth that predicted that the Democrats are still going to be in control of both the House and the Senate. I will stand by that. I'm ready to be embarrassed. That's totally fine. Uh, But I don't believe these polls, and I don't believe the stories that have been coming out uh, since the end of the summer. Uh, I don't think anybody knows anything. Uh, But if the Democrats do get shellacked, it will be in keeping with what normally happens when a particular party has the White House. Um, They tend to lose seats. The notable exception to that in our lifetime was 2002 when the Republicans gained seats uh, in the presidency of George W. Bush in that midterm. Um, But uh, everybody's saying the Democrats are going to lose seats and they might lose both houses of the Congress. I say horse feathers, poppycock to all that. Um, I'll probably be wrong, which is fine. It wouldn't be the first Um, time. And it might, yeah, and it might be, um, and it and it might just be my general attitude toward what, excuse me, what we would call conventional wisdom, uh, because that conventional wisdom that the Democrats were going to be facing headwinds became sort of calcified, I would say, in like January. And I was like, how could you possibly know in January when the elections are 10 months away? That that they're going to face headwinds. Um, so I called that way back then, uh, and I'll pro- I'll probably pay dearly, and I'll eat some crow, and that's fine. Um, but and I don't have any stake in it, by the way, because I won't be voting in this midterm because um, I moved and I messed it all up. Well, shame on you, comrade. Shame on you. Uh, the uh, so I generally have gone along with conventional wisdom on this one. And I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of the Senate. Uh, the Senate, it seemed like, should have gone red, more than likely, this this cycle. And that's not a comment on whether I like the directions of either, either party. As you know, I, as a pastor, I try not to, to do that. But just exactly what you were saying, that that's what we would expect. However, the polling over the summer and into the fall looked like it was saying that the Democrats would keep and maybe even increase their control of the Senate. Um, some of that's been attributed to the Supreme Court reversing Roe v. Wade. I, I tend to think that that was overplayed, although at least for a moment, I suppose it had the cultural attention. I, I think it could also be that people aren't really terribly happy with either party. And more directly, and this isn't particularly novel that I'm saying this, but I I think most people would agree some of the candidates the GOP has put up to try to take back seats that look likely to flip red this time, they're just not particularly great candidates. Lots of scandals and skeletons in the closet and things like that. And we we certainly can think of Herschel Walker in in Georgia. Um, But we we could also question Dr. Oz in, in Pennsylvania and um, 
I'm blanking out his name in Arizona, uh, Blake Masters. Uh, they're not yeah. they're not great candidates, and so um, you know, there's that. However, and this is interesting. I I, I tend to follow five thirty eight. I don't know, Conrad. Do you do you follow Nate Silver's work? I do follow five thirty eight. I've been following five thirty eight for a long time. Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent site. I, they they generally are, are somewhat uh, on the money. Not always. They 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 haven't always called like the presidential election right, but they seem to pick some of the dynamics correctly at least. And, and something they've been commenting on quite a bit over the last couple of weeks is is the shift back. And I think what you've seen is if there was influence from Roe v. Wade, I think that's faded. Inflation's a big deal right now. Gas prices are going up a little bit uh, once again. In general, the economy just isn't doing that well. Um, and you can say that's a, a, a at fault of the party in power. I think you could just as easily say that it's cyclical or continued recovery from the pandemic. It doesn't have to be a partisan point. It just, just simply is. It's not great right now. And so that generally favors the party out of power, especially in the midterm. And notably on 538, they've switched from calling the Senate as likely to go Democratic to what they're calling a dead heat now. As of this moment, as we're recording, they're saying there's a 55 and 100 chance that the Republicans will take it, which isn't guaranteed. Uh, but they seem to think that even the bad candidates, as I believe Nate Silver himself mentioned, people are voting more for party than, than person at this, at this juncture in American history. And so it's really, do you want team red or team blue in charge? Not do you like the guy that's on the ballot for you? We're almost treating senators and Congress people like we treat electors for the president, which um, I, I don't know. I'd say it was good. I, I think it might be actually quite bad, um, but that seems to be how people are handling it. Um, more so, though, and this is where I really doubt your your wisdom. Your not your wisdom. Uh, plenty of reason I doubt that, right, comrade? But uh, <laughs> no, I I, uh, I doubt your prediction. I just don't see how the House stays Democratic. I, I really don't. I, I think the Senate it could go either way. I, I don't see that happening with the House. Well, that is a, the reason I'm saying that. And for the House, it's not just the dynamics that we have in this election, but it's the uniqueness of the House with respect to the Senate. Um, in the House, those really are 538, uh, I'm sorry, 435 individual races in the House. And so local impacts, local issues, quirky things that pop up in particular races that have nothing to do um, with the national mood, the national environment can affect a House race. So what I'm saying is I might even agree that the national environment would tend to favor the Republicans, but the House is more insulated from what might be the national environment than the Senate would be now. Um, and that's ironic because that's not always been the case. Um, but I, I think in the House, it will come down to more of the candidates. But I think you're right about the Senate, that it may not matter who the candidates are. Although, along those lines, I'd like to add uh, Bolduc in New Hampshire as one of the Republican candidates that's a bit troubling that may hand yet another seat that was winnable uh, back to the Democrats. Uh, it wouldn't be a switch. Maggie Hassan has been there. Um, 
but that's one in this environment that they should be able to win, and I don't think they're going to win it personally. And I think Fetterman's going to pull out the one in Pennsylvania. Despite what Real Clear Politics is saying, I'm going to say the most controversial thing on the show right now. I think Real Clear Politics has gone full in on its ideology, and they're no longer just data collectors. So I see them trying to manufacture um, something positive for Republicans in each election more than I used to see it in the first decade of this century. Um, so uh, I don't trust real clear politics uh, anymore. Uh, so I don't trust their polling averages either. So that's my controversial statement for, for the day. Yeah, I think generally speaking, I like Real Clear, but I, I tend to like 538 better. Um, they don't seem to have a sense on, on whether it'll be Fetterman or Oz. Uh, I, I will say, and again, I'm not trying to make this a partisan point at all. I, I kind of worry, and this is because of our polarization, we really don't seem to care when a candidate simply isn't able to do the job. And I, I mean no disrespect to Fetterman. I'm sure he's a wonderful man. Um, I think we should acknowledge how serious a stroke is and not that people can't overcome it. Yeah. Um, and I pray he does, and I pray that he does quickly. I, I question, and I wonder if at any other point in American history, though, if we would be pushing forward, possibly electing someone to one of the most powerful positions in the country, when he's still having a hard time piecing together words. And that's not a criticism of him. That's As someone who has experience with a family member having a stroke, I, I get it. Um, it. It's a painful process. It's a hard process. It's a years-long process. Um, and again, I'm not saying, I'm trying to stay very nonpartisan here. I'm simply observing more as someone who has personal experience with people having strokes. I have to question what we're doing there. If he wins, um, he might, he might be the most caring man for the job. He might be the most committed to Pennsylvania. I don't know. I'm not trying to make a comment on that. Um, I just don't think in a less partisan time, uh, it'd even be a question. It'd be obvious. Uh, we shouldn't be putting people who aren't presently able to do the job into the office just because they happen to carry the team that we decide to support. Yeah. And I think it's altogether possible. And I will acknowledge that. Uh, that stroke that Fetterman had has changed this race. I think it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be talking about this going toward the Republicans possibly if Fetterman had not had that stroke. Uh, uh, I think it, it adds a, it adds a wrinkle and I, and I would have no problem if, if John Fetterman won the race and then he said, you know, you know what? I was wrong. This stroke is affecting me. I'm going to resign. And then we had to do it all over again. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm not pushing him to get out of the race, but I concur with everything you said. The voters may well decide that it matters enough to them that they, that they either sit it out or they vote for Dr. Oz because Fetterman had a stroke. And uh, uh, that could be terrible depending on where you're looking at it, but. It would be understandable if if the voters said, "Hey, I don't know if we can do it. Um, that's a problem." Um, I certainly join with you in, 
and praying for John Fetterman and uh, for the right decision to be made by him for his health and for for everything. Uh, and then hopefully it doesn't become a problem if he is Pennsylvania's next senator. Um, so yeah, um, and you know I, I get where where people will vote for someone even if person the particular person shouldn't be in the office because we have become so partisan. Um, and, and I know I'm not going to say who I'm voted who my vote would be for in the um, Missouri Senate race, but I will say I have a strong personal opposition based on on the way the one candidate has handled matters. I'm trying to be intentionally careful here so I'm not giving away an endorsement or or unendorsement or anything. So uh, I'm troubled by the one, and yet I would have a hard time voting for the other, even though I don't want to see the one person in the office, because I don't necessarily want to tip the overall balance of power the other direction. And, and so I get the pull where you say, I'm vo- I'm on team such and such, I'm going to vote for that person, whether that person's able or not. And, and I, I think that disturbs me. And it, it, we should get into this, we're, we're running out of time, Conrad, but we should get into this in a future episode. I would love to see the Senate go back to being an appointed office rather than an elected one, because I really dislike... Totally agree. Yeah, we, we need to have that discussion, because I just dislike how partisan the Senate is now. Yeah. I agree. Okay, well, uh, we will uh, have to go into that more and agree more on, on how we need to rework the Constitution in a future episode. Repeal an amendment to the Constitution. That would be really nice. Good luck. <laughs> <sighs> well, that is exhausting. We're talking about politics, and we've been talking about it like a horse race. Or, or a baseball game, but, but I think it weighs on all of us because we realize it affects us deeply. It, it affects our nation deeply. It affects the world deeply. It, it brings in all kinds of questions, and, and sometimes we just need to escape that for a little while, and that's why you should check out Biblical.com. That's B-I-B-L-I-C-L-E.com. Yes, that's not spelled correctly, but it is spelled the way that Biblical.com is spelled because it is Wordle with Biblical words. And so it's a fun way to take a few minutes away, see a verse from God's Word or more that, that uses a word, learn a little bit more about your Bible while having fun playing a Word-A-Day game. And, of course, then playing its companion game, Anagrammel.com as well. These two games will give you a little break from midterms and the things that keep you up at midnights. And instead, just you can have a little bit of fun, unless you choose to do it at midnight, in which case it may keep you up at midnight. But check it out. Biblical.com. That's B-I-B-L-I-C-L-E dot com. I really think it will give you a bit of fun, and I can't wait to see how you do at it. Biblical.com. Man, oh man, I love that slow groove right there. Isn't it great? It just, uh, it's a perfect way to transition because we need to, to let ourselves just calm down a little bit from all the intensity of all this and be reminded of who's in control. And of course, that is our God. And for our biblical encouragement tonight, we want to turn to Romans chapter 13. And I think, you know, it'll be hard to, to cover all of this, but I encourage you to go there and just read 
the entire chapter. I'm going to stick mostly in verses 1 through 7 of Romans 13. And Paul is telling the Romans actually some of the more difficult things that he's going to tell them. Because it's very practical. He starts it off this way in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authority. And I know when we talked about this at the Faith Tree Men's Bible Study tonight, uh, we had a, a very good discussion about what does that mean to be subject to the governing authorities? What if they're immoral? And we face that often in our own society. Um, but what we came up with, and if you go forward with this, these verses, says that the people in authority are put there by God. And so... Uh, for Paul to say this in the context is bold because the Roman Empire is far worse than anything we face here in the United States. And yet, how often do we struggle and even sin to show respect and honor to our governing authorities? Um, and so we're challenged by these verses because if St. Paul can encourage the people in the Church of Rome to do this in their day when they're literally being killed by the authorities, then I I think we don't, you know, Paul is basically telling us, without telling us directly, we don't have a right to be struggling with this as much as we do, given the differing context. Uh, and I'm not to say we don't have anything to, to disagree with our government about. I'm not saying that at all. But they're not killing us, at least not here in America. Um, they're not tying us to to posts and setting us on fire. They're not literally asking us to worship false gods. Um, we we can do this, and we do struggle with this. And let's just be reminded, as it says here in God's Word, that God is the one who's in control. He says. Uh, in the second half of verse 1, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You can't put it any plainer than that. Um, if you think the world is somehow irretrievably, irretrievably broken because person X is sitting in political authority, well, according to the Bible here in Romans 13, you're wrong. Um, so... You know, we we talked a little bit about civil disobedience earlier in Bible study and and the contours of that. And basically, as you go forward with this text, um, if if you couldn't do what you intended to do without sin, um, then you probably shouldn't do it, no matter what the governing authority is trying to do. So there are ways to oppose an immoral government uh, without sinning against God. And so let's be challenged to know that God is still in control, even if people that we don't like, we don't respect, end up holding power. Uh, let's not act like uh, all is lost, because Jesus is still on his throne, and there's not going to be an election about that. It's over. He's the king forever. Uh, I'm blathering on. You're the pastor. Why don't you take over? Amen. Well, uh, I, I love what you you had to say. As always, you always uh, get right to the heart of what we need to see, and I, I think this is so important as we come to this election because 
thankfully, we have a functioning democracy in the sense that uh, we we see exchange of power. We see one party come in, one party go out, and inevitably, we're probably going to look at one party and think, "Boy, I'm so glad they're in power." And then we're going to look at the other party and say, "I can't believe these people are in power." And for the Christian, what we're reminded of is that, as you were saying, God's allowing these people to govern, and so we're called to a level of respect for them, and we certainly should care for them. Uh, Peter calls the church, as he writes to them, to honor the emperor, and the emperor was far, far harder to honor than anyone that we have to show honor to. So the question is, well, what's at the heart of this for the Christian? And I think what we see throughout Romans 13 is the call to love our neighbor and to love God. We, we love the God of the universe who is in control of everything. And so our first call is to do what is pleasing to him. And you pointed out, you know, if we think that we're going to do some sin to try to prevent greater sin by other people, we're, we're clearly headed in the wrong direction. But it also means loving our neighbor. And, and loving our neighbor includes those who are elected officials that, that we don't really want to love. But God calls us to love them. And, and I can't help but think if Christians actually practiced this, if our focus was, how do we get more people to know who God is? How do we preach the gospel? How do we be faithful to him and worship him? And in that, then, how do we love our neighbor, whether it's our literal neighbor next door or or the president of the United States or the speaker of the house or the the majority or minority leaders or or anyone else in, in political office? How do we we love them. I have to think that would do a whole lot more to positively change our society and the world than when we think we're somehow doing that by yelling and screaming and blatantly disobeying scripture. Uh, we need to actually do what God has said. And if we want other people to do what God has said, including our politicians, what we ought to do first is start doing what God has said ourselves. And we can't do that if we're busy dishonoring and, and being blatantly, sinfully disobedient to governing authorities while they do their legitimate work, uh, whether and only obeying them when we like them. It reminds me when Jesus says about loving our enemy, and he talks about how the the pagan, even the pagans, pray for and love their friends, the people who love them. And I think we could kind of add that. And well, even the pagans, like those in political office, when they're the ones that they voted for and and prefer. Uh, we're called to something bigger, which is loving our political enemy and, and seeing God using them. Let me just let me just say something from my spiritual director from a way back. Um, that whenever somebody upsets you, and let's apply this to our political figures as we've been doing, whenever somebody upsets you, he said to me, "Why don't you go into your mind and and get yourself in a prayerful posture and." Put them before the Holy Trinity. Put them before Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if if you can't picture them sitting before Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and being blessed by being in the presence of God, and if that doesn't fill you with joy, then that's the work that you have to do. Mm-hmm. If, if, if heaven itself doesn't if you don't want that for your greatest enemy, your greatest political enemy, then you got to rethink the whole thing. 
And that's not to say that whoever it is, whatever elected official is on their way to heaven based on what they're doing, what they're believing, that sort of thing. I'm not saying that. But if you can't hope for that, if you can't pray for that, then you've got you've got problems. Uh, and, and so that was a great challenge for me because I've been made angry by politicians lately um, in the last few years and even the time before that. And I go, hey, what's important here? God made the world. God made all of us. God is trying to redeem all of us and has, in some sense, redeemed all of us. And so let me agree with God. And if I can't agree with God, then I'm in trouble. i got to go back to him and start over. Uh, and I think that's our challenge right there. I don't mean to steal all the thunder there, but... It, no, that, that's uh, that's so well said. I, I think that's a... We're out of time, but that's a wonderful note to close on is uh, imagine those that we oppose before God and, and wish that they would experience that joy. Um, may that be what we do every single day. Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, we love you. We're praying for you. Amen. Uh, I can't say it any better. Thank you, comrade. That's so good. Uh, that I love this show and I love doing it with you. I love that we get to talk about issues like this and I hope maybe provide a little bit of a different approach than what our listeners are hearing elsewhere. We're honored and overjoyed that you listen to us and join in sharing in these things with us. And so if you have any comments, feedback, feel free to leave it in the comments on our social media channels. You can also, of course, write us at zippy at ofb.biz. It's great to hear from you. We'd love to pray for you even if there's a way that we can be doing that. Certainly we would love to. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting source, whether it's Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, it doesn't matter. Wherever it is, we're there too, and we would love to be there with you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for listening to us once again, two Christian guys zipping through the news and culture that matter to you. And of course, comrade, as always, thank you for sharing in the conversation with me. It's a joy. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim.